Let's begin with the cases, and we'll start with your first case, John. This is a 40-year-old guy who I'd actually had met at a Christmas party at another neurosurgeon's house. And two months later, he ends up in a snowbank seizing, found seizing. He goes to his local hospital. He goes into renal failure because of myoglobinuria. And because he knew this other person, this friend of mine, his wife called and the patient was transferred to Hopkins. On his initial MRI scan, he had an enhancing area, premotor on the left side. By the time you saw him, what kind of condition was he in? He had a normal exam. His renal failure was improving. So he had a very obvious enhancing lesion in his premotor area, really in one gyrus. And then he had this kind of wifty flare abnormality in his posterior inferior left frontal area that wasn't clear what that was. Some people were interpreting it as maybe tumor, maybe it was related to his trauma, to his multiple seizures. And so he transfers in and question is, obviously, does he need a needle biopsy, resection, what the therapy's gonna be. What was his personal situation, family, work? He had three kids. He worked for a foresting company and kids were, I think, nine, 11, and 13 at the time. His wife was a nurse, and of course she was there. Manesh? I think there are a couple of things that pop out. This is a relatively young patient. He's only 40 years old. So we know that age is a significant prognostic variable in glioblastoma. And having a young patient, in general, you'd expect that patient to do well. The other thing is that this patient is very, very functional except for the seizure activity. So there are no other symptoms to go along with this, which again is a favorable prognostic factor. The tumor appears to be localized in one gyrus for all practical purposes. Again, that's a good thing because that implies that perhaps there's more localized disease than you would expect and a good resection could be performed. So I think these are all factors that suggest that this patient likely will do well. Jim, how accurate can you be just based on an MR in terms of predicting what you're going to see, particularly in terms of whether it's a low-grade or high-grade lesion? I think pretty accurate. I think that the tumors really do look differently. I try to keep things simple, so anything I see on an MRI is tumor. <laughs> so, yes, I need pathology. To, and you so want to I, see pathology on I the need other pathology. lesion too, the flare area? That I just ask the neurosurgeon. Can you get it safely without compromising? That's not really for me to determine. But even to begin to talk to the patient, I need to know what type of tumor this is. So I want it resected, but I have to assume that other abnormality is tumor. Now, Patrick, as you're seeing a patient in this early stage, are there any trials, for example, if he was at your place, that maybe you'd be starting to think about? So it depends on the grade of the tumor. Most of the trials are for grade four, and there are some trials for grade three. There are very few trials for lower grade tumors. So basically, until you see tissue, you're not gonna be able to sort of triage a patient in terms of trials. So what happened, and what did you do about that flare area? Okay, so he had surgery for the enhancing lesion in the premotor area, and it had sharp edges, it was one gyrus, the entire gyrus was removed took extra white matter underneath it. And then his treatment involved and was great. What about the other area? That really was not accessible through the craniotomy. And given that it was high grade, we assume that the other area was also high grade. So in his adjuvant therapy. But you were leaving tumor there. Or did you take out the second area? No, and the second area was diffuse in his language area. It was subtotal tumor surgery. The area where he had his operation was felt to be 
gross total of the, there was no flare abnormality in that area after surgery. So he then went on to get his adjuvant therapy, which he participated in a clinical trial. What was the path, though? I'm sorry. Grade four. Okay. Grade four. And his radiation field included that flare abnormality plus the area where he had surgery. Four months later, in that inferior flare area, he developed enhancement. He still was having relatively few symptoms. The convection trial with transferrin-linked diphtheria toxin was just opening, and we were a participant in that. He was six, seven months past his diagnosis. And so he had the convection of the transferrin-linked diphtheria toxin, another clinical trial. Tim, does that include a biopsy before yeah, it does. you? It does. And what was the result of the biopsy? Because one of the things that comes up tumor. is that this... If it's in the same area of the flare abnormality and doesn't go beyond that, so if you start, you have a flare abnormality that is yay big and you have a spot that's contrast enhancing and it continues then to involve that entire area, sometimes that can be a pseudoprogression-ish. Yes. And so understanding what that pathology is on that biopsy I think would be helpful. If you see it go and extend beyond that, then it's much more likely, at yeah. least from my point of view, that that's recurrent yeah. tumor. Yeah, the trial required a stereotactic biopsy confirming tumor before you could initiate treatment. I mean, the catheters were placed at the time of the biopsy, and then within 24 hours, you got the diagnosis. So, And what was the substance, this diphtheria? It was transferrin that's conjugated to diphtheria toxin. So and it's a, the idea being that it would get picked up more in the tumor? Well, cells that are growing need iron. They oftentimes express the transferrin receptor. There's no transferrin receptor in normal brain, except on endothelial cells. And so it was an approach at targeted treatment. His tumor did express a lot of transferrin receptor. I mean, that was looked at as part of the study. So he's somebody who uniquely got an experimental trial because he happened to have a marker that was perfect for that trial, right? So this was a two, two and a half centimeter area of enhancement that was patchy right in his posterior inferior frontal area, left frontal area. And within seven months, it completely disappeared. It went completely away. And this is an how area is that it, had never had surgery. given into the brain or systemic? Convection. So it's like an IV that drips in and then a pressure wave forms and it pushes out towards the edge. And how of often is it given? Two treatments that two were treatments. six weeks apart. So, so he two got surgeries. two treatments six weeks apart, had a complete clinical response? Or? Complete. It lasted for five and a half years. Wow. And then he recurred. But, you know, the issue would be in retrospect, I would check MGMT, methylation status, right? I'd go back to that tissue of the original surgery and maybe in that biopsy and I'd look for that because that also now, I think we go back and we look at our our tails on the curve that we've had from prior studies. And the reality is most of them probably were pseudoprogression. And pseudoprogression is hard to differentiate. And even when you do a biopsy, tumor will be there. And whether people did KI-67 at the time, whether there were true mitotic figures that were present, tumor will always be there in those areas when you do a biopsy. And the question is whether it really is tumor or not. And progressing tumor, you mean viable? Progressing, yeah. via, right, right, progressing tumor. And I would guess he's young, he had... An early progression at that. Yeah, very early progression. Mm -hmm. And it's in an area that was presumably non-contrast enhancing. I would guess, and it would be a guess, of course, but if that tissue was looked at, that he would have methylated MGMT. 
What did the study eventually show, incidentally, of this agent? It was negative. So you all have used a couple of terms we need to explore here, MGMT status and pseudoprogression. Let's start with MGMT. Tracy? It's a gene that produces a protein that mediates resistance to alkylating drugs. And so if the gene is active and the protein is present, it mediates resistance to temozolomide and potentially other alkylators. It's been shown now in a number of trials. Actually, the first paper was in the New England Journal almost 10 years ago now, looking at BCNU usage and showing that patients who had the gene inactivated had a much better outcome and response to BCNU. And that was then validated in this large randomized phase three trial that got temozolomide actually approved. And so now that I think a lot of centers, probably everyone around this table, their own centers do this now routinely and prospectively in patients who undergo resections. And I have actually introduced it into the discussion with patients. It has some prognostic implications for patients. And there's a trial that we'll talk about later today that actually you need that information in order to enroll the patient on this particular clinical trial. So from a practical point of view, for example, what would you say to a patient who is either MGMT high or low? Well, if the MGMT is inactivated, then you have a better prognosis. You have a median survival in the Stoop trial of almost two years, as opposed to about a year if it wasn't. Jim? What's becoming clear to me is that if you have an unmethylated promoter, it's just a bad tumor. (laughs) Invasiveness, multifocal disease, every single trial, an unmethylated promoter. So I'm not sure of the therapeutic implications of it. That's really has to be a very important part of our research efforts. What can we do with the unmethylated promoters? The other thing, Neil, I'd like to add about MGMT is there's incredible variability with who does the assay. It's like ERPR for breast cancer. That's not good. It's a big problem. Oh, that's not good. It's IHC? No, No. it's really the PCR. Methylation-specific PCR. Methylation-specific PCR. I don't think the IHC has panned out, even though Duke is a strong promoter of IHC. I don't think it is predictive. But there's one company that has a patent on it. Academic centers are doing it. Honestly, it's like ERPR 25 years ago, where you said, boy, all these hormone trials are dependent on who does the assay, what the results are. We need reliability. Tom, can you talk a little bit more about, you said it's RT-PCR, so it can be done on formalized tissue? Right, that's certainly true. But the fact is, is that it is a continuum of the extent of methylation, and yet one is trying to make a black and white designation, methylated versus unmethylated. In fact, there is a gray zone, and different laboratories set the threshold for positive versus negative at different levels. Okay, so before you go on, we got to divert out to pseudoprogression. Patrick, you gave me a little lesson when I interviewed you about that. Can you go through that? So with radiation therapy and temozolomide, you wait four weeks, and then most centers, you get an MRI scan four weeks afterwards. And on that scan, perhaps 40 to 50% of the time, it's worse. And so one of the big clinical issues is whether this is true tumor progression or this phenomenon of pseudoprogression due to radiation effect. And it probably turns out that 50% of the time, it's real tumor progression, and 50% of the time, it's pseudoprogression. And the MGMT status is helpful. There's a study from Albert Brandis published in JCO last year now, I think, that suggests that if it's pseudoprogression, you're much more likely to have a methylated MGMT promoter. And if it's real tumor progression, you have an unmethylated MGMT promoter. So in some ways, that MGMT methylation status helps you decide whether it's real tumor progression or pseudoprogression. What's the pathophysiology? What's actually going on? 
I think it's when you have radiation, it makes blood vessels more leaky. And so when you give the contrast, there's increased enhancement for a period of time after you receive the radiation therapy. And that time is maximal in the first three months, but can actually persist for six months or more. So other than MGMT status, any other clinical clues to figure this out, or you just sort of wait and see whether they get better? It's really hard to separate out, but usually if it's pseudoprogression, on the whole, patients generally do better. They're not as symptomatic, but that's not a perfect way to differentiate. Manesh, any clues that you've been able to find to dissect this out? I think this is a very significant issue in such a patient, especially in hindsight. The patients obviously become a long-term survivor. Is this the effect of therapy because we happen to have the right molecular profile in this patient? Or is this a patient that genuinely had a dramatically positive response in the first place, which led to tumor necrosis or pseudoprogression? I think for our long-term survivors, this issue comes up again and again. When we radiate these patients, when we add targeted therapies, when we add systemic therapies with these patients, and we get changes on MR imaging, what are these changes? Tracy, what do you think the understanding level is in the community about this phenomena, what's happening to patients? It kind of reminds me a little bit of the PSA flare sometimes you can see with implants. And here these people get put on androgen deprivation, which is not a pleasant thing. Do you think that docs out there in the community know about this? I think they're not as aware of this as they need to be. In fact, this is one of the most common email or phone call questions I will get from community oncologist is, we did the first scan, the patient looks pretty good, but the scan looks worse, what do I do? So I don't think that there's a lot of awareness about it. It's a relatively new, it's not new biology, but it's in terms of being published and out in the community, it's a relatively new development, just with a few papers out in the last couple of years. In Maryland, what I see is that in that situation is that their first scan looks terrible, their second scan looks terrible, and the patient gets put on Avastin immediately. It's the first response. Instead of waiting it out, yeah. Yeah. Had you entertained the possibility this could be pseudoprogression when you were like just about to present this case, or in your mind, this patient responded to the therapy? No, I thought the patient responded to the therapy. I've never seen a response like that. I presented it just because of the fact that the guy happened to kind of fall into the medical center. I mean, he might have been treated locally. I mean, they had a plan for him at his local hospital. He wanted to participate in clinical trials. He was a motivated person that wanted to get involved, and it benefited him because he saw two of his kids graduate from high school, I think, and continued to work and had a really good six, seven years. But I think that a lot of these trials that people would like to participate in, and I tell people all the time, is that there seems to be two or three, four, five patients that responds magnificently to the treatment. David, what are your thoughts? The only thing I was going to say is in terms of docs out there practicing, when a patient comes back for their one-month scan, it's usually a tremendous shock if their scan looks worse. One of the things I always do is I tell patients up front before we start therapy that there's a good chance that when you come back a month after, your scan's going to look worse. And we see that, and depending on how you're doing, that may be from tumor, it may be pseudoprogression. But in general, what we always do is that scan, and the clinical trials do this as well, that one-month scan serves as a new baseline, not as a measure of whether that initial therapy helped or not. 
Interesting. We didn't talk about neuroradiologists. Do they know about pseudoprogression? What's going on in terms of quality there in the community? Certainly the neuroradiologists at the tertiary centers, I think, are all very well aware of this. How about out in the community? I don't know the answer to that, but I think in general, I think as Tracy alluded to, I believe kind of across the board, including neuroradiologists, my sense is that there's probably not the awareness. And I think the neuroradiologists are also at a disadvantage because they don't know the patient's history. And that becomes critically important. It certainly does when we have our multidisciplinary tumor board meetings. We look at the films and the neuroradiologist is there. We can say, well, this patient got such and such therapy then, or they've been coming off their steroids, and maybe that's what's making a scan look worse, issues like that. I think educating the radiologist is critical. Many of their reports are misleading. Hmm. And not In what ma- way? Clear progression of tumor. I'm taking care of the patient. Right. They're reading no, what they it's see. Not. They're reading what They're, they see in the last line of the report is always correlate clinically, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly worthless. And I couldn't imagine an oncologist in the community who doesn't look at any of his films taking care of those patients. If I get those reports... I'm providing and acting on, I'm really providing bad care. So I think you have a great opportunity for education. Interesting. Sunil, I think this actually raises that issue about specialized teams taking care of patients. What would happen to a patient like this in the community setting is that first of all, their pathology is not looked at by a neuropathologist. It's looked at by a general pathologist. Hmm. So there's a source of error right there. Now, fortunately for grade four glioblastoma, that error rate is under 20%. But when we start looking at grade three, that error rate can be 40 to 50%. So there's a huge error rate in neuropathology. Then you get to this interpretation of imaging studies. We have issues in tertiary care centers about educating skilled neuroradiologists who spend a bulk of their time doing nothing but reading follow-up MR imaging in patients with glioblastoma. Imagine this patient in the community setting where a general radiologist who sees an occasional patient, looks at this scan. This patient will have a categorical report of progression. That patient will now be seen by their oncologist who generally does not review scans themselves. They have a report with a categorical line of progression. That patient will get the label of progression. And they might become hospice-bound. They might become palliative care-bound. They might become go home and make your will. So let's finish out on local therapy. And John, we get a lot of questions about the gliadel wafer, the small dime-sized biodegradable polymer that delivers BCNU directly into the surgical cavity. Can you talk about that? Well, I think that for gliadel in terms of having a potential impact on the natural history of someone's disease, using it up front makes the most sense. And as with any treatment, I mean, your best opportunity to impact that disease is probably at initial therapy. There are certain issues at recurrence in terms of the cytoarchitecture of the brain around the tumor cavity, in terms of a drug diffusing into the brain, which are present after radiation that do not exist before radiation. So that initial therapy in terms of drug delivery makes more sense. I kind of got the feeling that it's not used that much in practice, or is it? I don't think that it's used as much as possibly it could be, or at least people who are eligible to receive it based on their anatomy and what can be achieved at surgery 
probably only a small percentage of those people actually do get gliadel. Could you just clarify what you meant there, though, in terms of the parameters? An eligible patient for gliadel has to have a tumor that the surgeon thinks before surgery that he can gross totally resect the disease. To just suck out the center of the tumor and have a rim of enhancing disease and lay gliadel in would not be a good idea. One, it would not impact the disease in any way. And two, it can create more problems because you do get, if you have sort of bulky enhancing disease and you put the wafers in, you can get a lot of tissue necrosis. And we've had a number of patients over the years that have had gliadel put in at an outside hospital where just a little resection was done and there's a lot of bulky disease left and they get a lot of swelling, necrosis, and need sort of urgent surgery for that. So it needs to be somebody that you can know before surgery you're going to get a gross total resection. Secondly, it's best when it's in a situation where it's a simple analogy, but where the resection cavity is like an ice cream scoop out of the brain, okay? Instead of like a vase where you have a tiny channel to a cavity, okay? If you have a narrow corridor that you made and then a big cavity and you that cavity collapses and you put the wafers in, you can oftentimes get a lot of tissue reaction as that drug is released. And that can sometimes, similar to pseudoprogression, I mean, that kind of phenomenon where you get a lot of brain edema impact on the patient. So it's best when the cavity is close to the surface and you can get all of the disease out. Interesting. 